Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is uh, your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it and occasionally ourselves. A few brief words of warning. Uh, This program typically features respectful, nuanced and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references and spurious allegations of various kinds. I'm Camille Foster of Freethink. This is episode 55 Uh, And we are recording this on the evening of May 4th, 2017, starting, I think we're past fashionably late. Uh, I am joined as always, uh, well, most of the time anyways, by Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, who is in the building, and uh, Michael Moynihan, national correspondent of HBO's Vice News Tonight, also known as Hollywood Moynihan, is on a bender someplace, may come into the room. He says he will. We can't be sure. That a-hole, and I'm, I'm being nice here at, at mm. the beginning because I know mm. that uh, people are trying to drive when they have their kids and stuff, and yeah. my mom is going to get mad at me. For I've saying, already given the content warning. For saying words like asshole. So anyways, that a-hole uh, uh, just commented on my Instagram post. That's oh. how much of a jackass he is. Oh. Uh, that I'll be there in five minutes. He, wait, he wrote that on your Instagram post? Yes. Because huh. I, I just took a picture of all the copious amounts of booze, yeah. at least a couple of which were probably donated by listeners. Am I right about yeah, that, Camille? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do have some uh, some wonderful. I mean, the whole table is uh, is filled with alcohol. Um, we uh, let's let's talk about the booze in a moment. Uh, is he is he coming? Hollywood. In? Oh is my god, he's in. here. He's coming in. Um, <laughs> while he's coming in, uh, let me. Uh, we've got a busy day, so let me run down what we've got in store. Um, there is uh, today is a miraculous day. There's been a great deal of uh, of public policy stuff. Uh, we've got a new budget and uh, a new health care bill that has made its way through the House. Um, there was a, a parade on Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, the circus is uh, is coming to town. Uh, everyone is super excited. Um, the damn thing hasn't gone to the Senate yet. Uh, but more on that later. Um, there are uh, also a number of police shooting related stories for us to discuss. Uh, President Trump is uh, cuddling up with dictators and says something in- incoherent. Uh, and the uh, European Union, the uh, greatest soap opera um, on television, um, is uh, is continuing to roll there's, on. There's not enough space for all these. Why are we pretending this is very professional? And, and in, you're like, oh, this is going on today. And uh, I'm doing the Richard Pryor white guy. Do you voice, see this? Right? He yeah. walks in late and then screws everything up. I didn't um, walk in late. I was just getting ready to introduce. Early. I was just getting ready to introduce our guest. Mr. Jamie oh, Kirchett, we got a very him? good friend. Yeah, yeah. It's a pronounced yes. Jaime. Oh, oh, my gosh. Um, columnist, smart guy, author. Uh, he is a, a contributor at the Daily Beast. I, I hope I got that right. I He's think an author of what book, Camille? Sell the book. Uh, dude, can I, can I get to it? Can no. I build up no. to, uh, to what this the is hell the we're rapport. doing here today? Jeez. <laughs> Um, Jamie is the uh, is the author of a new book, The End of Europe. Um, it is uh, part explainer, part Jeremiah. Um, and uh, Jamie, thanks for uh, for hanging out with us a bit. Um, I, I know what everyone really wants is for us to talk about all of the various ins and outs of healthcare, but we don't care. We know that it's yeah. more important to talk about your uh, your new uh, your new book project. But before we get to that, where the hell are you? I'm in Boston uh, at my parents' house, actually. So Moynihan, I'm representing. Are you in? Uh, uh, you're outside of Boston. I'm in Dover, Massachusetts. Okay, yeah. all right. That's a that's a decent Dover. town Dover, in okay. Dover. Yeah. So you got to yeah. do the whole interview talking like this about <laughs> Europe. 
right. Adam <laughs> Jones was making it up. Yeah, Adam Jones yeah. is lying about the racism at Fenway Park. <laughs> it's like, no, it's Fenway Park. Of course he's not lying. By the way, I, I, I know nothing about that scandal. All I know is that they absolutely use the N-word. Like, is there any doubt that, like, Boston fans were using the N-word? No. Zero. Zero. I don't need to know the details. I just heard, oh, like Boston. The, by the way, the only the person that will tell you is the did. black guy here. <laughs> Who hadn't even heard anything <laughs> about the story. But he's already rolling his eyes. He's like, no, I can't. No, possibly. I'm actually rolling my eyes at you all. Like, adult men. Y'all. We, we are doing a podcast. It's got that E beside it because we, we can say profane things. Oh, and you keep God. saying N-word. N-word. I don't... <laughs> I don't know what you're talking well, about. I don't, I'm, I'm gonna, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't he, even want to talk about He it. was, they said the, Nigeria. They were talking about a country. Oh, I don't want to have to no, say this fine. stuff. Yeah, you don't have to. It's fine. Like, let's talk just, about, let's talk about. You just want to ruin my career. Let's talk about Europe. I don't want, Again. I only want to enhance your career and you know it. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about Europe um, and, uh, and, and perhaps why it matters. Now, Jamie, I, I have read your book. I don't know if, if Welch and Moynihan have. Um, I have. So perhaps only... Oh, no, Moynihan No, I have. I have. Moynihan I've reads lived all his of the book, things. so... Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, Jamie, if, let, me, let me try to summarize this up top. Uh, the premise of the mm. book, uh, as, I, as, I, as I understand it, is that the West has been an essential bulwark against all manner of threats and despotism in the world. Uh, but uh, at this particular moment in time, uh, when despots are... Uh, anti-liberal forces are growing more brazen and more powerful uh, that Europe, the European project, sort of finds itself in um, facing pretty remarkable challenges. Um, and uh, it's, it's Brexit, it's the, uh, the French election, it is the, the growing ranks of the far right um, and uh, all of the various economic challenges that they face. And one has to wonder what happens if, if Europe fails. What happens to the West? What happens to all of the freedoms that we all value? Um, and uh, you, make a, you make a case for why uh, Europe matters and also give people a, a, a pretty good uh, view of what the hell is happening on the ground there from your standpoint. Is all of that generally correct, directionally? I, I want to set this up. That's a very fair. Uh, the only thing I would say is that, I mean, the West, I mean, Europe hasn't just been a uh, bulwark against you know, illiberal forces. It was in its history. It was the embodiment of many of them. And what I fear is that we see these, you know, these same historical illiberal forces coming back on on the very continent where we thought they had basically been banished from history. Put it into contemporary context first, because I know the European project. Um, this just this attempt to unify the various countries on the continent um, who have who have historically fought uh, pretty pretty. Uh, nasty uh, conflicts with one another. Um, but the European project has certainly faced uh, challenges and uh, in the past. What is different today? Um, how, do, uh, how do Brexit and the French election um, that are playing out right now um, to challenge that project? Well, I think the main difference is that there actually is a project and there actually are institutions, namely the European Union and NATO, which were basically you know, founded after the Second World War to prevent those, uh, that, that sort of conflagration from ever happening again. So we at least have those institutions. And I guess one of the reasons why people are worried about Brexit is because it's the first time that a country has, you know, voluntarily left the EU, and there's concern that other countries might leave as well. Um, so that, that, I would say, is the one major difference. You know, and obviously, you know, the economic situation is much, much better. As bad as it is now, it's much, much better than it was in the 1930s. Um, there aren't 
you know, there are, there are significant differences between now and that period in history. But I think we shouldn't be too complacent uh, um, about, about where things stand and just assume that, you know, the horrors of the past couldn't, couldn't come back. Jamie, you and I, I think, met probably, I guess probably 10 years ago in Washington, D.C. And there was a sort of coterie of people there that, you know, have kind of fallen off and they kind of disappeared. There were people that, that kind of became, you know, writers, bloggers, et cetera. Matt knows a lot of them, too, uh, after 9-11. And, you know, some of them went that real bizarro direction, like Charles Johnson of Little Green Footballs, and then came back and became something else. A lot of these people that kind of fell off a bit, I see them now. And I see them talking, for instance, about the French elections. And people would cl classify them in the past as conservatives, right? People that were conservatives in the American sense of the word. And they are really, really, uh, you know, throwing all their weight behind people like Marine Le Pen. Give me an idea of why it is. I know that you're not a fan of Front National beyond the fact that, you know, Jean-Marie Le Pen, the, the co-founder of the party in 1972, has made, let's say, some impolite comments about, you know, the Holocaust, saying it's a, deta a detail of history and was expelled uh, from the party in 2015 by his daughter. Why is it that those people that I see so many that used to, you know, I would imagine you would probably consider at one point fellow travelers. Why are they wrong about people like Marine Le Pen and Yurt Wilders? Well, it's not just uh, these more fringe characters. I mean, Ross Douthat wrote a column a couple of days ago, not necessarily endorsing her, but certainly being more positive than you or I would be. Yeah. And Chris, Chris Caldwell, I think for years, has been fairly sympathetic to Marine Le Pen and the National Front. I mean, I think they're wrong. First of all, I don't think Marine Le Pen is conservative. Um, I mean, certainly not on economics. She's a statist. Uh, and in fact, I think it's very telling that the far-left candidate in the French elections, this guy named Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who wants to reduce the 35-hour work week to 32 hours, because apparently 35 <laughs> hours is yeah. too onerous. We're trying to get 10% unemployment up to 15. <laughs> yes, I mean, if not more. He has refused to endorse the centrist candidate, Macron, because I think, you know, this, this shows you the kind of horseshoe thesis of political science, right? That the far left and the far right have more in common than they, than they do apart. So, I mean, you know, Le Pen is, is, is a statist. She's pro-Russian, openly pro-Putin. She's anti-American. Um, and I think while she's definitely done a clever job of sort of trying to clean up the party and making it appear less racist and anti-Semitic and whatnot... I don't think we can really have much doubt about where the real sort of, you know, heart of the party is. And I think she sort of re revealed this a couple of weeks ago when she was asked this question about French complicity in the deportation of Jews. And she came out and basically said, well, France wasn't responsible. Um, and that was a real blunder. But I think, it, you know, you scratch the surface and you see what's really under. I mean, when you scratch the surface and right after that, you have somebody who uh, in a high ranking position in the party yes. who had to leave basically because old interviews were found in which he denied that the Holocaust happened. Not only a yeah. detail of history, but a non-existent part of history, according to people in the, in the in Front National. But the point is, that, to your point, if anyone has um, the opportunity to do this, there's subtitled versions, um, some kind of truncated versions of the debate the other night between Le Pen and 
and uh, right. Macron. And she it, had some zingers. She had some zingers. I mean, she's she's very yeah. good at what she does. But yeah. you know, she sounded almost exactly like Bernie Sanders in almost every part of it. Yeah. She said, "You know, you right. are outsourcing our jobs, and you don't care about French workers. You're a member of the cosmopolitan elite and the bankers yeah. and all this stuff." Which, if it's Front National that's doing it, sometimes abuts the kind of anti-Semitic argument we start talking about bankers. They usually get to the Rothschild soon enough. But you know, the argument was indistinguishable from almost everything that Bernie Sanders said. I think the word she used the most was protect. Yeah. They said, I'm going to protect you. We're going to offer protection. I don't know if you noticed that as well, but it seemed to be a very you know, deep theme of her rhetoric. No, yeah. because it was in French. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> and you have a French wife and you still don't understand. Oh, whatever. Um, no, just kidding, Manuel. Sorry. I totally understand everything you say. Um, uh, no, but I mean, to Moynihan's point a little bit here, there is a uh, American kind of uh, conservative take on the this dissolution that we see in uh, in Western Europe, a dissolution that yeah. is being added to uh, and encouraged in a direct way uh, that I'm sure that you will we'll talk a little bit more about uh, by Vladimir Putin and, uh, and Russia. But um, yeah. their argument will be, uh, and I hear this from libertarians, too, that, hey, some of this is a useful uh, you know, reality check corrective against out of touch transnational elites who have a workaday disdain for the average person and voter in their own uh, places. They're just sitting around making their regulations right. about the shape of bananas in Brussels uh, yeah, and all yeah. this kind of stuff. So what is your response to that as uh, even if we look, they, they go too far, but this is the way for elites to get their comeuppance and maybe to actually make a more democratic case for uh, these institutions being good uh, for the individuals in the countries? That's a very good question. I mean, I think there are some areas where I would disagree with sort of the European elites. I think on immigration, in terms of external immigration coming into Europe, I would be more sympathetic to the restrictionists, um, you know, only because there, there really is high structural unemployment in Europe right now, and they have these massive welfare states. And so it's not, you know, we can't have this kind of libertarian utopia where you just have open borders. You have open borders within the EU, and I think that's a very good thing. But in order to, you know, main, maintain that system, um, I think you do have to have some sort of restrictions on the external uh, immigration that's coming in from Africa and from the Middle East. Um, and I think that there is a gap between European political elites and their, and their populations, at least in, in some countries. Um, so I would, I would give them a point on that. What I don't like is that you know, this, this comes bundled up in so many other awful things. Um, if it was just this point that you know, Marine Le Pen was making, I wouldn't have as much trouble with her, but it's the fact that she's pro-Putin on top of it, the fact that her policies in, in terms of dealing with you know, Islamic terrorism would just lead the country into civil war, I think. Um, and then there's you know, the, the, the Holocaust revisionism, the anti-Americanism, being anti-NATO. I mean, there's, there's a lot of other awful things in here that, that, that make it a very ugly package. Can you uh, can you give us a little disaster porn uh, before Camille jumps back in here of like what would happen? How would it look like if it all goes wrong in the next five, ten years? Well, I wrote a piece for uh, foreign policy a couple of weeks ago where it was sort of a dystopian scenario in the year 2022. And it's President Le Pen. It's Prime Minister Corbyn in the UK. Oh, uh, there is a left wing government in Germany, which basically renders NATO useless. And then the Russians invade Estonia and NATO doesn't do anything because, you know, Trump uh, doesn't want to intervene. Uh, there's an, another military coup in Greece. 
I mean, this is all very somewhat somewhat far fetched, but the whole point of the exercise was to, you know, show people where things can go if all these problems go, you know, if these problems are followed through to their logical conclusions. Um, but what worries me about Le Pen, I think everyone's sort of, you know, patting themselves on the back and she's going to lose and it's 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 the end of the populist tide. If you compare what she's going to get, which is probably 35 to 40 percent, if you compare that to what her dad got in 2002, which was 18 percent, I mean, it's a huge increase. And so, yes, Marine Le Pen is going to lose on Sunday. But, you know, in five years, 10 years, if the problems that the underlying problems that make someone like her popular, if those problems go unaddressed and this situation continues to get worse, and that's high unemployment, that is terrorism, um, high youth unemployment in particular, if these problems continue, then I don't see why it should be beyond the realm of possibility that she will become president one day. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting thing because after Yurt Wilders uh, lost, we'll say lost in a very broad sense, there is all of this, you know, um, high-fiving that I saw, amongst, yeah. especially American correspondents and American commentators who, you know, yeah. often talk about things they don't know don't, too don't much know about. Anything. They don't know anything. Yeah. And, you know, Wilder's party, which is a basically, um, you know, one, it's a, what the Freedom Party is a one-man yeah. party, basically. It's kind of the Fred Phelps's church. It was only, only people of the Phelps family. But they did incredibly <laughs> well. And they, they actually right. increased their vote in a yes. big way. But they didn't, you know, you know, take an absolute or a plurality or a majority. And so everyone said, oh, geez, thank God. It's like, no, no, no. God, look at yeah. the, look at the, the trend lines for Wilders, look at the trend lines for Front National, and especially in Sweden now, and, and Jamie, you can talk about this a little bit, you wrote a piece recently about Sweden, um, uh, the Sweden Democrats, Sverre Demokraterna, who's, was when I lived in Sweden, they were, I think, probably a half a percent, and it was some yeah. something, you know, that you wouldn't talk about in, you know, polite company because it didn't, you didn't need to talk about it. And now, and I know you've mentioned this, what they call in Sweden, the O6 corridor and like the, the yeah. opinion corridor, you're not allowed to talk about it. And that actually became something that, that allowed them to grow and grow and grow. And now you have, you know, this truck attack from a, a guy from like Turkmenistan or Kyrgyzstan or something who is Uzbekistan who is being who is being supposed to be deported, and this happens in the exact you know on Drottning got in the exact place where a suicide bomber detonated a vest in two thousand nine and blew himself up and only himself up. So yay for him. But the thing is, is what 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 ends up happening in Sweden is that well yeah you know they might drop a little bit from the, the the poll that you saw, you know, a couple of weeks ago, 25%, 22%. They might get about 16, 17% or something, but good God, they're the second or third largest party. And one of these parties, like the Liberal Party, um, Folkpartiet in Sweden, which is liberal in the sense of they're, like, they're almost libertarian, you know, classical liberal party, has basically disappeared. I mean, when I was there, yeah, when I was there, they were like a party in Centerpartiet, the center party, old farmers party became also very much more libertarian, much more market oriented. And they're kind of, you know, disappearing uh, in this Anna Löf, who's the head of it. They just, you know, and all of a sudden they're picking up all these voters. I mean, the, the important thing about the first round of the French election, when everyone's sort of focusing on, on uh, Marine Le Pen, is, you know, what party does Francois Hollande represent as, as the leader of France and the Socialist Party? How, what percentage of the vote did the Socialist Party? Six percent. Wow. Six percent. I mean, the Socialist Party, and as we vacillated back and forth between these kind of old Republican parties and the, in the sense of the Jacques Chirac parties and back to Socialist parties, 
and they got 6%. That is actually astonishing. That's astonishing. A major trend has been the collapse of social democracy, basically social democratic parties across the continent. So the French Socialists, 6%. You have the UK Labour Party, now led by a a crazy person named Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, They're probably going to get the lowest number of seats they've had since the 1930s in this upcoming election. The Greek Socialist Party has been overtaken by Syriza, which is even further to the left, almost a neo-communist party. And in Spain, you have the um, the, the Socialist Party in Spain is being taken over by Podemos, which is like a, a, a Chavista party. And, and in Holland, the, the Labour Party also did really poorly as well in that election. And what's happening is a lot of these voters, they're not necessarily going to the more radical left parties. They're going to the far right. Mm. And so a lot of Marine Le Pen voters are former Communist Party voters. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, you have a third of Labour Party voters in Britain voting for Brexit, which the Labour Party is supposed to be against. And so there's... I mean, this is a real problem, I think, that you have this collapse of, you know, mainstream center-left parties, and they're being replaced either by uh, the far right or the far left. Well, Jamie, I wanted to ask you about um, just sort of solutions here. Um, in, the, at the yeah. early, in the early portion of the book, you paint this picture of the, the profound failures of the Obama administration uh, in terms of its ability to uh, confront Russian aggression, uh, the fact of the failed reset um, and you contrast it with at least the, the the sort of early the early indications that the Trump administration was going to take a much softer tact uh, with with Russia. Um, I'm not certain uh, what your thoughts are on the uh, the vast the vast conspiracy um, that is uh, supposed to exist, where uh, whereby wherein uh, Vladimir Putin is controlling Donald Trump from afar, um, but. Presuming he also killed Andrew Breitbart, apparently, well, according to Louise. Uh, obviously. Yeah, but Louise Mensch is really <laughs> going to rip the lid off this story. But presuming, yeah. presuming that's Some of that not... Botox got into her brain. Presuming that's not the case. <laughs> presuming it's not the case that he's been hijacked. What does it actually look like when the United States is confronting Russian aggression in a serious way? Um, I mean, uh, you, you paint a picture of folks coming across the border um, of some sort of former Soviet bloc country and Russian troops coming across the border. You shoot the first guy. Like, do you shoot the second guy? Like, how many, how big a conflict are we willing to risk? I mean, that shouldn't have to happen, okay? We had a, we had a strong deterrence policy during the Cold War. Uh-huh. <laughs> And we never had to have a shooting war with the Russians because they we had NATO and they believed they believed NATO would would prevent any sort of Russian incursion into Western Europe. And similarly today, I don't you know, look. The reason why NATO was created was to keep the Americans in, the Germans down, and the Russians out. And with the exception of the part about Germany, which we want the Germans to play a more assertive role in Europe now, it's really kind of the same purpose. And so I think we need to, you know, move the border east. We need to have American soldiers not so much deployed in Germany anymore as they should be in Poland and the Baltic states. But what does that mean? I mean, how how in how in fact do you affect this change where people actually take NATO seriously as a credible threat? Well, I can tell you that it would, it would help a lot if the American president didn't call into question Article Five, which is the Collective Security Clause, and he's yet to explicitly endorsed that, which is a real departure from every previous American president. There was never any ambiguity 
uh, about whether or not the United States would come to the defense of its NATO allies if they were attacked. And now we have this president who, you know, for 18 months was saying NATO is obsolete. You know, apparently as of two weeks ago, NATO is no longer obsolete. <laughs> yeah, so he, he, changed, he changed his mind on that. Yeah. 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 But this is really damaging. But I don't. I, at the same time, I don't want the Obama people to get a free pass. And I just, you know, I just wrote a piece the other day, uh, drawing a connection between the Obama foreign policy and Trump's. And I think it's really ridiculous listening to all these Obama people, you know, bemoan how awful. You know, they're all they've all found like their inner, you know, Scoop Jackson. Um, <laughs> when for the past, you know, during Obama's tenure, they were basically letting the Russians get away with anything. Uh -huh. um, and, so, and so I think, you know, I think a real full examination of the record would show that there's really not a whole lot of difference between what Donald Trump's been saying and what the Obama people actually did. Sure. I think, for years. Yeah. I think I think that much is true. But but it's still I'm, I'm still here on this same point, And I, I don't want to I don't want to push it too far. But I still don't know what it looks like when we're doing it right. Like several years from now, a new person is in office. What what does Jamie what does Jamie do when he is president of the United States and the Russians say, you know what, we're just going to take the, the rest of Ukraine like this belongs to us now, too. Do you do do you do something about that? I'm glad you mentioned Ukraine. We should have been giving the Ukrainians defensive weapons so they could defend themselves. Um, we should have been pushing stronger for um, NATO expansion in both Georgia and NATO earlier. It's too late for that now, obviously, but absolutely, we should have been giving, and we should give weapons to the Ukrainians. There are much stronger sanctions that we could be imposing on the Russians. Um, there's this proposed new gas pipeline that the Russians want to build, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the purpose of which would go, it goes underneath the Black Sea, it bypasses the Central and Eastern European countries and goes straight to Germany. And this is a real, there's a political motive behind this. It's so that they, you know, in, in political crises, they can cut off oil supplies, gas supplies to yeah. Central and Eastern Europe. Which they've done. And then sure. they can exercise political influence this way. And there's no need for this pipeline Except to, you know, and who's on the board of this pipeline? Gerhard, Gerhard Schroeder. Schroeder. You know, this is the most amazing thing, by the way, where we, we um, you know, we did a piece uh, with Carter Page, which uh, uh, Josh, Josh uh, Hirsch uh, did. Uh, my friend Josh Hirsch, whom I love and is, I think is great at the stuff we were talking afterwards. And it's like, you know, John, like Page, of course, the FSB pointed this out, too. They're like, this guy's a bumbling idiot yes. right and we're obsessed inspector with clouseau. yeah he's inspector clouseau and he's like you know it is a bum <laughs> you know he's like kind of <laughs> bubbling through this thing like we have to have find the bum and in and, and and we're obsessed with carter page for sort of domestic political reasons etc one of the amazing things and i'm glad you mentioned it's almost no one that remembers after the great uh, years of the, the stability years of Helmut Kohl, and then you have Gerhard Schroeder, which we whom we all talked about, you know, ad infinitum during the Iraq crisis and after, um, kind of disappears, right? He disappears, and Merkel takes him. And where does he disappear to? He becomes a flunky of the of Russia's state-run oil company, and no one mentions it. How many pieces or follow-up pieces have you seen about the fact that? The, the former chancellor of Germany was a very, very powerful chancellor of Germany, too. He wasn't one of these kind of interregnum guys. I mean, he wasn't the, the, the sort of Chernyenko of Germany. He was a, a powerful uh, chancellor. Disappeared into the kind of, you know, gas psychotic Kremlin complex 
and and no one ever talked about it. And you see his influence in in things like this pipeline. Let me let me follow and it's up. Not on a, that. It's not even conspiratorial. You see, half these jackasses are talking about you know pipelines that were supposed to be built in two thousand one in Afghanistan. That probably got more traction in the U.S. and the fact that the former chancellor of Germany is 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 uh, working for let for me, the Russians. Uh, let me follow up on yeah. that with a, with a, an actual question, uh, which is to say <laughs> <laughs> um, that uh, uh, you lived in Prague for a while, uh, yeah. uh, Jamie, and um, and uh, I, I know you've uh, covered goings on in Hungary. Um, it's shocking to me. And Poland, my God, you know, has a has a, a, a weirdo uh, government now. I never w- would have thought that Poland would be yeah. in a position of actually questioning NATO, um, um, c- considering how hard they drove the expansion of NATO back in the day. They're not questioning NATO. They're they're having issues with the EU. I would okay. say, but okay. it's it's, it's hurting the their relationship with NATO. Yes. So, um, can you just give us like a a, a, a thumbnail of how Russia? Uh, influenced places that were, when I lived there, were as anti-Russian as places could ever be. You're talking about Fidesz, aren't you? I'm, I'm, no, I'm talking about, I'm, but I'm talking also about the Czech Republic. I mean, the Czech Republic was a was a hysterically anti-Russian place. People who had been taught Russian in schools for 12 years, you would say, Dosvidanin, like, I don't, what, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't, I don't understand what you mean. Uh, you know, it's a Slavic language. Of course, they understand every word. Um, and yet, right now, uh, they own a lot of media in Prague and such. Talk about the mechanics of that influence and the pervasiveness of it, because I think that a lot of people who aren't familiar with that area think that it's all conspiratorial, and I don't no. think that it is, actually. No, this is one of the more incredible things. And If you look at a guy like Viktor Orban, who's the prime minister of Hungary, who was really one of the great liberal leaders of Eastern Europe. In fact, he made his name uh, giving a speech when he was a 26-year-old law student in the main square in Budapest calling on Russian troops to depart. He was one of the first people in the region to do that. And then now, you know, 25, 26 years later, he's basically become Vladimir Putin's best friend within the EU. And he's hosted him multiple times. There's a nuclear uh, power plant being built with Russian money and a very controversial deal. Um, And he's basically, you know, he's turning his country into what he himself called explicitly an illiberal democracy. And the latest, you know, outrage is they're trying to shut down the Central European University, which was built by George Soros and Michael Ignatieff is the rector and they're basically Jews. attacking it. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Two Jews. Jews. Yeah. I don't know if Ignatieff is Jewish, actually. I'm not sure. Maybe probably. Is, sure. I mean, if, 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 <laughs> by the way, if he's not, if he's not, they probably think he, he is. should be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he should be. Um, but it's, 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 it is remarkable. And these are countries that, you know, you mentioned the Czech Republic, you know, brutally occupied and, and, and invaded by the, by the Soviets. And yet there's this apathy when it comes to Russia today. And it is remarkable, and I think it has a lot to do with uh, ignorance of history. I think there is just a, a, a crisis of values in these countries, and there's just a, a we, we assumed that people would have been all kind of like Václav Havel, you know, like great liberal Democrats, mm. and that's not the case. There seems to be a, um, I think ethnic, uh, ethnic nationalism is a much stronger force than we had assumed, and the That's Russians right. are very good at manipulating this and sort of playing upon these grievances. And you've seen this in particular with regard to the migrant crisis, where there has been the fiercest resistance to accepting any migrants whatsoever is in uh, Eastern Europe, is in Poland and Hungary and the Czech Republic. Um, and these countries, as you know, are ethnically homogenous, and they have been for decades after World War II, you know, basically these these countries were, 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 were ethnically cleansed. Um, and so, the no, and so they, they don't really have a, a, a history. In, in, in recent history, there isn't much memory of any sort of 
uh, ethnic uh, diversity or whatnot. So they've been very resistant to this. And I think the Russians have been very good upon playing on these fears Mm. Um, that, you know, Merkel is basically bringing in all these dark-skinned Muslims into Europe, and therefore you have to oppose Merkel, and therefore you have to oppose the EU, and therefore you should support Russia and what we're doing in Syria, because we're going to support Assad, who's going to keep the migrants from... It's all, it's all you know, horseshit. But they also, they also um, own, like, newspapers and television stations, too, yeah, right? Like, it's not... There's a huge, um, you know, fake news, you could say. This has been going on for years in the Czech Republic. There are probably... There are dozens of these conspiratorial websites that have very uh, shady ownership structures, um, but it's, cle- it's, it's sort of suspected you know, that they all kind of originate in Moscow. This is something that's really important to point out is that you know, in the past, what, what you know, the Soviet empire did was, of course, take over countries directly, control their right. media directly, shut down opposition newspapers directly, make sure novelists, like you know, if it was Boris Pasternak or, or, or Solzhenitsyn, make sure they were either exiled or, or, or you know, in a gulag somewhere. In this kind of soft version of the, the kind of post-Soviet soft version of this, is you see it in Eastern Europe, you see it in Venezuela. Um, great example of this recently because of all the stuff that's going on in Venezuela. It's been in the front of my mind. Um, you know, El Universal, this great um, opposition newspaper, one of the biggest newspapers in the country that all of a sudden had a new owner. And people started tracing, journalists in Venezuela started tracing who owned this thing, and they couldn't find out. It was one shell company to this shell company to Panama to this. And it was like, it's the regime. It's the Maduro regime. And you see the exact same thing, fake news is an unfortunate term in so many senses because it it's kind of redolent of these sociopaths like Mike Cernovich and these people. But in Russia, you know, the troll factories, these these sorts of things, they do it in a very it's kind of a GRU operation in a lot of ways. If you look at Christopher Andrews' book that he wrote with Vasily Matrokin, uh, The Sword and the Shield, which has a great outline. And by the way, I, I, an article in the Daily Beast uh, the other day of a historian. Um, who uh, used to be on the board at the Nation magazine? Fantastic guy, and he wrote a he wrote a, this long piece about oh, yeah. how Oliver Stone fell for a bit of KGB fake news disinformation about Jim Garrison and oh, about I saw you yeah, this, so it's, it's a real thing. It's it's nonsense. And I had actually pointed out. I think I was the only person to point this out. I did it on Twitter like a month ago. <laughs> there was like nobody noticed this in this in this um, uh, the Sword and the Shield. It points out that the the publishing company in New York City that published the first JFK conspiracy books were funded by the KGB. So essentially, the entire industry was created by disinformation coming from the KGB. So magic this, bullet theory. I, I mean, like essentially all of like I'm not sure of that in particular, but all this entire cottage industry because number one they wanted to get, to get the focus away from the fact that the man who actually killed the, the president communist. was a communist right. who defected to the Soviet Union and married a a Russian woman named Mirna and was Must handing the mafia. Yeah, exactly. You know, Occam's razor says the guy that's handing out fair play for Cuba pamphlets must have been, you know, a mafia operative. So they they have a, a motivation for this. They're trying to kind of get the attention up. They didn't do it. Obviously, they're trying to get attention away from them. But the same stuff you see today is, you know, the same stuff that's been in play for decades, you know, Czechist stuff from 1917 on. But the difference now is that, that we just do it in a slightly different, more technically advanced way. It's the Internet just makes it really easier for them to spread this crap. Hmm. Um, but you're right. It is the same kind of KGB active measures playbook. And all, what they want to do is they want to basically make the West and people who live in the West as conspiracy-addled, you know, zombies, hmm. um, so that we can't even have conversations. A friend of mine wrote 
a great book called uh, Everything, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. Oh, Peter. Peter. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. About, about Russia today. And that's, you know, he wrote that book in 2014, okay? And that was solely about Russia. And I don't think any of us would have assumed that just two years later it would be telling us so much about our own world. But, you know, this is why I think the Russians supported Trump. And I don't think you need these, like, Louise Mensch, you know, conspiracy theories to figure this out. I think he was the chaos candidate, as Jeb Bush called him. He was spouting conspiracy theories. He was attacking NATO. He was attacking our allies. He was a, a disruptive, anti-establishment figure who would divide America even further and, and make the Western alliance less cohesive. And I think that, if you're Vladimir Putin, it should be obvious why you would want Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. I don't think we need these you know, conspiracies that he was recruited by the KGB when he visited the Soviet Union in 1987, or there are these you know, obscure financial things, which may be true. There may, we may find that there was collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. I'm not sure. But I think on the obvious level, on the, the, the surface level, um, I think the more you understand about what the Russians are doing in Europe and what their goals are in Europe, I think it becomes easier to understand why they would have wanted Trump to win. Well, we've, we've talked a lot about the Russians. Um, I want to I want to ask you one Bruce more thing before Bruce we before Reds. we before we let you go, Jamie. Um, the uh, Brexit situation is still playing out. Um, just just yesterday, uh, we we saw uh, Miss May actually come out and say that uh, the uh, European Union uh, is trying to uh, meddle in the uh, in the election there um i i wonder i wonder what your thoughts are on the prospects for um a a mutually beneficial resolution to the negotiations that are taking <laughs> place between the uk um and uh and the eu and i mean look the uk is uh is a pretty significant uh, economic player on the continent they account for a great deal of the tr- the, the total trade that takes place there um, in the European Union, um, it, it seems to me that it is mutually beneficial to find a way to keep the economy of the UK as integrated as possible with the broader European economy. But there is also this competing interest to punish them for leaving. Um, I, I, uh, I, wonder, I wonder how you think that'll play out, um, because plenty of people, plenty of people are, have been predicting um, sort of horrible, horrible chaos, and, and it's very, very early, and it's way too early to know how bad it will be. Um, but uh, certainly, I think the the that the EU remaining EU member states are punching themselves in the face uh, if they uh, try too hard to punish the UK. Well, I'm not sure if the word punish is correct. I mean, look, if the e- if the UK is not going to be a member of the EU, then that means that they can't have the same relationship as other countries. And there's this talk about, well, they could go for the Norway option, you know, Norway and, and Switzerland, which are not EU members, but they are in the common market. But what's left out of that is that they also have the freedom of movement. And so um, EU members can come and work and live in those countries. So basically, you know, Norway is for all intents and purposes a member of the EU, even though they're, they're not formally one. But the reason the Brits left uh, the EU is because they don't want the freedom of movement. They don't want more people coming into their country. So it's going to be difficult for them to balance that desire with, you know, Boris Johnson said, I'm pro take and pro eating it. Okay. That's going to be a difficult, that's going to be a difficult. (laughs) It's a good line. It's a good line. I mean, he always has great lines, which, which actually, which actually reminds me of what you, uh, what you wrote about Greece um, and the fact that the, uh, the Greek people have been voting essentially for, for policies. The, the Greek people want two different things. They want to both be a part of the European project, um, but they also don't want to do any of the things that are necessary to stay a part of the 
the European project, which I think, look, uh, in a in a democracy, uh, however, uh, pretty much any place around the world, finding voters who uh, incoherently want things that contradict one another um, is uh, is actually about par for the course. Uh, Greek may be an exemplar in that respect, but uh, we see that we see that plenty of times. Yeah, I mean, look, if the Greeks want to be in the same currency union as the Finns, then they're going to need to collect taxes at the same rate as the Finns are. They're going to need yeah. to have a corruption rate that's at the same rate as the Finns. They're going to, you know, they're going to have to be they're going to have similar standards. And I think, in retrospect, you know, no one really seriously believes Greek, Greece should have joined the euro. Not least the Greeks who cheated on their books to get in in the yeah. first place. Well, and now that. they're prosecuting. And now they're prosecuting the statistician who proved this. Uh, some kind of traitor to the nation. I mean, Greece is a sad story, and it's in. <laughs> Does, I mean, the compar- yeah. comparison between the Greeks and the Finns is probably is is the greatest <laughs> example of the difficulties of the European Union. In, yeah. You go you go to uh, Finland and you can you know eat a gyro off the uh, train station floor. It's so perfect and clean. And people are like, "Can I pay more taxes?" In Greece, there are people like piles of them right. sleeping. And they have been for 14 years. There was a great piece by Michael Lewis, um, which be- became part of his book about in uh, Vanity Fair about um, Greece and the meltdown in Greece. And it's about these monks oh, who, yeah, yeah it's f- really fantastic. But there's one bit where the trans- transportation minister says, you know, we could have sent everyone to work every day for the past 10 years in a limousine and saved money for what we were paying for transportation in this country because the unions and everyone was so corrupt. Right, and it's like right, it, right. Gives, it gives a great kind of, you know, looks this sort of stratification where you cut it in half and you right. see the insides of it. And you're like, good God, they say, why are you cutting our benefits? And like, when was the last time you paid taxes? And like, well, I don't know, 1942. <laughs> and it's like, I think that was when the, that was the Greek. I think it's Greek. That's not I'm Greek. not sure. <laughs> I don't know. I think we don't pay the tax. <laughs> <laughs> that might be Super Mario. It might be Luigi. I think it's Luigi. Super Mario and Luigi. And by the way, the, I, mean, I mean, the Italians yeah. kind of do the same shit too. So I mean, yeah. it doesn't matter. But perhaps, but Italians are not Greeks technically. Yeah, same uh, thing. Well, Jamie, uh, we we have to have you back, um, yeah, and hopefully, when you. you're uh, in New York, you'll swing by, and we can talk about. Yeah, uh, please do. We can talk about Snowden, and you can explain. Uh, oh, you guys yeah. can fight. You can you make guys the can case. Fight. You can make the case for why he is so obviously a Russian spy. Um, we, totally. But I only want you to do that in person. Can I tell you, Jamie, that Camille and I, last time we recorded this podcast, we were standing on the train platform, because despite the fact that he flies first class everywhere, he does he does take the train half the way with me, to be nice. <laughs> and he said, you know, I really, really like Jamie's book. I got some disagreements with it. And I said, you know, Jamie would be failing if you didn't. And then he uh, had this, the, the Camille twinkle in his eye, and he started saying about Snowden. And I was like, I think my train's here. <laughs> and, I, and I went 40 blocks uptown and took a cab home so. Yes. so oh god one day one day forward to it one day all right well thanks jamie. thank you Appreciate very much it, guys thanks, right, thank you jamie have a good one excellent excellent all right well now let's talk shit about it yeah let's talk some shit first about of it. all yeah anti-semitic stuff yeah there you go <laughs> you're gonna there do you that go. i see you. Well, well look we we do need to talk about this budget healthcare business um yeah we do both both things happen i i honestly oh, have been yeah, doing yeah, my yeah. very best to ignore both things uh quite frankly the 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 policy uh, of these two things uh, is is mostly annoying to me. We have a budget. We're spending more money than before. The Democrats and the Republicans have largely gotten what they wanted. 
we are spending what twice what we were uh, in like 2000 before 9-11 yeah. at this point. We don't have kind of major troop deployments. Uh, we're not fighting in active conflict, but it, whatever. Um, we kind of are, I suppose, uh, by proxy. Um, so there's that mess. Uh, we initially had Trump freezing hiring and now and, and threatening to cut the NIH budget and uh, they got more money. Uh, as a consequence. Uh, so here again, uh, the lack of principles on the part of the Trump administration, the Trump regime, um, has resulted in a compromise uh, that got rid of the possibility of a government shutdown, but continues to contribute to the uh, to the national debt. So we, we got that thing. Um, and then today we get this remarkable gift. Um, <laughs> the House uh, finally delivers on its effort to repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, and of course, by replace, they mean replace it with um, Obamacare, <laughs> <laughs> except worse. Um, so. Matt, um, this was uh, this was something that was passed by the slimmest of margins. Um, I suppose that there's a, a picture that can be painted of Republicans who last night were working really, really hard to to get everyone on board by adding as much nonsense to this bill as possible, um, and then today marching into uh, Congress, getting ready firing themselves up. Let's get this shit done. Um, they were, what? what is it, the Rocky theme? I think that was playing. What is the Rocky theme? Can someone? Yeah. So you can hear that in the background as they're getting ready. I was ready to do the harmony, man. Yeah, we would, I would, I would play the, I would play the audio from that, but we don't have the rights. Um, so they're, they're playing the Rocky theme. They're firing themselves up and they just barely pass this damn thing. And then everyone goes to the White House to pour Gatorade all over themselves, almost as if the damn thing doesn't have to go to the Senate and then go through reconciliation before it actually becomes a law. I don't know if that's going to happen, but Matt, please explain to me how it happened that all of the Republicans decided to vote for something that really doesn't get rid of many of the essential components of Obamacare that made it deeply problematic from a sort of sustainable economics standpoint. So I was at a uh, Washington, D.C. cocktail party, and I'm only saying that because dullards who like to have fun uh, at the expense of yeah. opinion writers and journalists who they disagree with always talk about D.C. cocktail I, parties. I just want to say that I was late because I was at a New York City cocktail party. I'll tell you who attended when we're off mic. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the worst. I haven't been to a DC cocktail party in like two years. Yeah, yeah. Why would you? And I've seen yeah. enough like khaki pants and navy yeah. blue blazers and white pearls to yeah. last me a lifetime. Sure. Um, but so I happened to be one, at one with a, uh, a a congressman on the Republican side, who uh, you know, out of deference, I won't uh, mention his name, but it rhymes with uh, Lamas Fassi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so a llama's fassy. Yeah. Yeah. Llama's fassy. Wow. This is like decrypting uh no. you know uh, an NSA uh, so bad this at this. Crazy. But go ahead. The uh, ultra secret. Go ahead. No one will have any idea. Um so uh it 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 it, it is so obviously clear to me, not necessarily llama's fassy. Yeah. Uh, although I didn't necessarily disagree with my thesis that um Especially the people in the House Freedom Caucus, who all voted for this, with one exception. One exception. And the one exception was not Justin Amash, who is the one guy who's usually the guy who's the exception of things like that. He voted for it, and uh, just before we went By the way, who was the one exception? I thought that, that there was an exception today. Dude in uh, in Arizona, and I'm going to just call up my thing. I'm sorry, what? You're looking at me like this. Um, uh, who his name is? Say what his name rhymes with. 
No, actually, <laughs> for everybody written back. in my uh, blog post here on the uh, on the. Uh, oh, so Eddie, I'm sorry, Andy for... Biggs. Oh, oh, Biggs. Names are yet again. Randy. <laughs> um, anyways, it's always Biggs. So, here's what happened, as far as I can tell politically, is that the Freedom Caucus people, I mean, they pushed every single argument that they had against Obamacare for seven years, these people, in in many cases, including Mark Meadows, the chairman of the Freedom Caucus, including Mick Mulvaney, who is the co-founder of the Freedom Caucus, and is now the director of Office of Management and Budget. And in that job, his job... Dr. Mick Mulvaney. Thank you. Um, As far as I can tell, the point of his job is that they knew that... He had friends in the Freedom Caucus. And so during the first Ryan Care, when it failed, he went at Trump's behest to crack skulls to get them to vote for something, which is a piece of shit that they all didn't want to vote for. It didn't work. And so the second time, Trump, as a candy negotiator, said, all right, Freedom Caucus, you write it. Right. So the yeah. first one was like, OK, Paul Ryan, you do it. And it's part of the extended Paul Ryan humiliation ritual that we're all familiar with. On the show. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. that totally failed. Yeah. But it failed because of the never ending story because of <laughs> uh, Freedom uh, Caucus intransigence. And then Trump called all those people out and said, you know, maybe we you know, they're going to stand in the way. We need a, a new people to run against them in 2018. They called out Justin Amash by name, the director of White House social media Dan Scarvino, um, I believe his name is mispronounced, um, said that, like, Justin Amash needs to be primaried. I mean, they, they targeted these people. And so what happened right after that? A couple or at least one um, Freedom Caucus member, Ted Poe from Texas, like, didn't like the heat, got out of the kitchen, said, I'm resigning from the Freedom Caucus. They felt a lot of pressure. The Hill today, this morning, uh, came out with a poll, an informal or at least an anonymous poll among members of Congress saying, what's your least favorite caucus about in this yeah. entire body? And there's yeah. thousands of them. Um, yeah. like, it's by far the Freedom Caucus. And this is uh, really true. Yes. Uh, also true. The among, Quinoa Caucus was my least favorite. Among, but... I mean, they have, they have like that. It's correct. I'm sure they have a Russia caucus in there. And they probably were were liked uh, much more. So they felt under the... Dana Rohrbacher on his own can't create a caucus. But... That's true. <laughs> the Rohr caucus. Uh, so the they Bob fe- Roberts caucus. They felt pressure to not be the ones to get blamed this time. Mm. Mm. And so uh, even though they spent seven, eight years talking about that the reasons why uh, Obamacare is terrible, chief among them are that it was rammed through down the public's throat you know they didn't get a single republican vote and it went too fast we didn't have a real debate is a quote uh from uh uh from mick mulvaney back when he was running for congress successfully in 2010 Mm -hmm. as an anti-obamacare candidate um we didn't have a real debate they did this thing (laughs) do you know how much debate they had they had three hours of debate today that Mm. was that was it that was the real debate that we had and it was terrible like all congressional debates are it's clear that they did this you know, before they even got a congressional budget office score, all this kind of stuff. Why? Because they wanted to have the blame be put on Rand Paul's doorstep or Jim Jordan, the senator from Ohio's doorstep, or John McCain if he decides not to do this. It, Republicans have this slim majority in the Senate. There's no way this is going to pass, I don't think, in the Senate, anything like it looks like right now. They just wanted to be able to shift the blame. It's this incredibly unseemly and a beautifully unseemly thing because everybody's on record. There isn't a single person, a Republican, I don't think, uh, who's been in the House for more than a day and a half, who is not on record as totally criticizing from Paul Ryan on down. Paul Ryan famously said, you know, um, 
we we can't do this without having you know the CBO come in and, and we, sure, we rushed yeah. it. We haven't measured it. They didn't care because they just want it off their shoulders. They want the next person to take the blame. Ezra Klein. I don't spend a lot of time agreeing with the man, uh, but he I think accurately portrayed this as a game of hot potato. Nobody actually wants to see it passed, mm-hmm. with the exception of Donald Trump and a few other people. So the question sure. is, the question is for you. And is although, that, is, although that that much isn't even clear, I'm not sure that Donald Trump actually wants to see this pass. He he may have gotten all of the mileage out of it he needed to oh, when he had that. But th- that actually leads to my question for for both of you: is that is that regardless of the actual you know policy itself. Does this suggest that Donald Trump is, despite being in George Will's column this week, which you tweeted, and it was, mm-hmm. it was really funny and really good, it, despite being a halfwit who has, you know, a problem. Syntax- syntaxically challenged. So are you. Fill that whiskey again. We'll talk about that in a little uh, bit. Does, does the question is, is that... Um, Syntax. Yeah. Syntactically. Syntactically. Syntactically challenged. It's just like that scene in uh, Hail Caesar. Yeah. Oh, it's, which, by the way, was uh, not a bad pretty, movie. Pretty good movie. Um, pretty good. Uh, you, low for their standards, but but generally a good movie. <laughs> but um, the I guess the question is, and I see this in a few in a few ways, in a few things of foreign policy, and especially in this, is that you know is he a canny operator, despite the fact that you know the tongue gets tied and is fat half the time and can't put a sentence together, it, it, you know. Is he doing something clever here? Uh, two things are clever. One is that he uh, managed to make himself more popular, I believe, among Republican constituents of members of Congress than the Republicans are themselves. They they might get voted at a higher level than he uh, has an approval rating in the district. Yeah. But among the Republicans in their district, so the people, their core audience... Sure. People don't know who their own congressman is. Right? They don't. No. They know that they like Donald Trump. I just did an hour of uh, Fox Radio uh, today with Andy Levy and Tom Shalou. Um, weirdly enough, it was for the Alan Combs show, which is strange because Alan Combs is dead. Nice. Yeah, he's nice dead. Guy. Uh, really? As is Red Eye. Yeah, Red Eye and Alan Combs. Yeah, both, um, both dead. Uh, there's, some, there's something a little wrong with that. There's something yeah, there a little was, wrong with that. Was, yeah. Who's uh, usually sitting in on the Alan Combs show? It's unclear. I'm sorry. Uh, hopefully Sean Hannity. Um, <laughs> hopefully not. But anyways, uh, we, we were taking callers and um, and on, on a day like this, when there's it's a policy day, right? And, yeah. You know, at least well, let's talk about this. Every single call was from people who talked about, I like Donald Trump because I am a conservative, I'm a Republican who lives in Hawaii, and I'm tired of all these people and their the, safe spaces. The feels. Uh, it was the feels. It's Every the feels. Single one. It's there, all about the feels. There was no exception to this rule. No. And even like the only times they, they, they extended the feels into policy, it was like, I don't want to pay for all this, you know, politically correct stuff. I'm like, great. You know, you just, your people and a unified government just increased spending by a higher rate than Barack Obama and, yeah, but I mean, again, it's the feels, and 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 if you see what Trump does, and I think what they've realized now, and I don't know if they've realized this, you know, kind of mistakenly realized this, is if you have a few adults in the room, that the president can go off script and can be bumbling and stupid and say things that make no sense. And I keep on referencing, which was the moment that it sort of crystallized for me when he was talking about Israel. And he said, you know, you're like a one state, you're like a two state. I'm like, what is he, a fucking pig Whatever. auction? He's like auctioning pigs off. <laughs> and he's like, what do you got? What do you got? A one state, a two state? And, he's like, and then you realize that moment when Netanyahu's kind of looking around for somebody else in the room to talk to kind of thing, that he has no idea what the difference between a one and a two state solution is, is that once you allow him to be him, and to go out and embarrass themselves, and you you essentially have John Carl, you know, badgering 
Sean Spicer about how how he said you know he'd be honored to sit down with Kim Kim Jong Un. Guys, you're paying attention to the wrong thing. Donald Trump doesn't mean anything by that because he's not smart enough to mean something by that. When he says I'm honored, that's what you say in a business negotiation kind of thing. And you know, John Carl saying, well, you know, uh, Kim Jong Un just killed his uh, his half brother with uh, you know VX gas in an airport. It's like it doesn't matter. It's yeah. just words that come out of his mouth that mean nothing, and they don't indicate a larger policy goal or a larger policy shift. But the adults in the room, as long as they keep it steady, and you see this in, in, the, in the Korean Peninsula, for instance, you see the negotiations with China, you see the shift between, you know, we love Russia and we're hostile to China has completely shifted, absolutely 180 degrees shifted. And as long as there's somebody that's kind of feeling things out there, it really doesn't matter what he says. It didn't matter what he said during the campaign, obviously. In that, those really low approval ratings have been ticking up slowly, slowly, slowly. And of course, the dredges of the world are going to pull out a Rasmussen poll. We'll have them at 140 <laughs> percent. It's like a Syrian election. Every time Rasmussen's like, you know, he everyone on earth loves him. Uh, but it is it a kind of a leading indicator in some ways that he's doing better in polls is that he can go out there and say nothing. Because the feels are what matters, right? And that, you know, as long as that there's not a, a conflagration, in, in a nuclear conflagration in the middle of Omaha, I think everything, that, that those people who vote for him are not going to, to, to peel back. There's always this journalistic thing where you find the guy who voted for Trump, you know, on the 100 days thing. And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really mad about it. doing. I, I made a big mistake. There's like three of them. And like Bill Maher featured this guy who did a video and he was like, because he fit the character. He's like, you know, some guy who's kind of a Southern accent. He looks like a union guy. And he's like, Donald Trump, I'm embarrassed that I voted for you. And it's like, but most people aren't actually. Yeah. They really aren't. And 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 I, I think they're probably wrong for, 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 you know, supporting him right now for a variety of reasons. But it's all about the feels. And, and, and that, to me, is when we talk about, you know, journalists missed it. They got it wrong. You know, they get a lot of things wrong. I mean, we're not, it's not Nostradamus here. We're not, you know, Rasputin. We can actually figure these things out beforehand. No, that's Nate Silver. That's Nate Silver, who's wrong about nearly everything. <laughs> but <laughs> but the, the thing that, that I think of when I, when I hear, so you guys are wrong and blah, blah, blah. I think that there's a, a, a bigger point to that, you know, rather than saying these polls are wrong, which is a totally different thing, a different model, and these things are wrong in different ways. But when that happens, like, yeah, 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 we were wrong. We were going to learn our lesson. And then the next thing you know, I, I, I watch people over eight news cycles parse some word that Donald Trump said that in, you know, somebody in, in an Oberlin college kind of, you know, bull session at 11 at night in the dorm room is a finds offensive. The more I talk to people that are Donald Trump supporters, and I've done this a lot recently, the more I realize, and I said this on the show last week, they, that they say, we don't care about the things that you care about. Not only is it grab them by the pussy, it's also policy specifics. They don't care there's a feels and like if if the if the american economy starts tanking and collapsing etc you see these fox news charts that everyone's making fun of on twitter like that the, you know obama coming in and and you should be making, making fun of employment in the first 100 days yeah i mean obama and and in, in, in inheriting something and then you know donald trump you know eight years later it's a it's a different thing but that's kind of how people think about this stuff they see those charts even people who make them i don't think the people at fox news who are making those are being disingenuous i think they actually see that this is like that yeah that's a thing 
It's, well, I mean, sort of, but not really, you know? So, I mean, all this stuff, you know, what we talk about is usually 15 nautical miles away from the way people think about it. Well, not, not just Trump supporters, though. I oh, think go, that's, go, go, that go, is God, the, no. Yeah, God, that's the, no, no, that's the to important, be clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you're the right. important thing here. Yes, I mean, yes, the, yes, the truth, yes, is, yes, the truth yes. of the matter is most most voters are not terribly sophisticated about most of these that's things. That's true. Um, otherwise, otherwise... Get Brian Kaplan fall, on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't fall for so many uh, ridiculous uh, gambits. And it, it is... It's funny. I mean, the George Will, the George Will piece you mentioned um, that, uh, that talks about uh, how uniquely challenged Donald Trump is with the English language, his inability to articulate himself, which was on display this week uh, when he talked about the uh, the Civil War in ways that confounded many people. He, he was just trying to sound smart. Um, I, it's I a Bannon thing because Bannon's obsessed with Jackson, and he got that from Bannon. Obviously. Sure. Well, yeah. th- someone gave him a book that he perhaps Didn't read two percent <laughs> of. Uh, and he then, read the and then Walter started, Isaacson quote in the back. Yeah, you know, because because the one thing that people never talk about is why the Civil War happened. Yeah. No, no one ever, uh, no one ever asked that go. question. Why he he doesn't know. <laughs> no, um, no, he doesn't. know. I love him. what he said that no one, no one ever talks. Yeah, about no one that. ever talks about Seriously? it, and no one ever knew that that, that this would be so hard. Um, but but I really do. I mean, the the conclusion that Will comes to in the column, of course, of thoughtfully. Um, reasonably is, hey, uh, American people, we should probably you should be calling your congressman, calling your senator, telling them that they need to constrain this guy because he might get us into trouble. And this is, of course, the instinct that I've, I've had for some time, the hope that in general, there would be an instinct to constrain him uh, more broadly. And I'm, for every I'm not, president, I'm not, I'm not quite yeah. sure, though. I'm not quite sure that 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 thing um, is uh, is starting to stick just yet. Didn't you see uh, George Will recently, Matt? Can you talk about that? No, you can't talk about it. Okay, I uh, mean it was it was lo- it was tender, it was loving. Yeah, I mean, yeah, um, yeah. No, I went to I went to a party at his house. It was really nice. Yeah. Um, he was by, nice. by the way, I want to point out that about 15 minutes ago, you said right. I just don't go to cocktail parties in DC. And you're like, yeah, two days ago, I was, yeah, I, was playing wiff, I was playing wiffle ball with George Will. I would go to George Will's house if he asked me. <laughs> I, pl- I pretended to be Ryan me. Sandberg. There could only be one reason why George Will would I have mean, And he pretended to be Carl Sandberg. Why would I go to a D.C. cocktail party? It was a, it was a, I, I ended up having... I should, God, why, Say, why come you on, make, this is why people uh, listen. Okay, I ended up talking, and I'm not making this up, for like a good 10 minutes. Imagine this scenario. I'm sitting there with Randy Barnett, right? A uh, great libertarian legal uh, theorist, and he brought a key Obamacare cases. George, and, Georgetown? Uh, yes. Yeah, Georgetown. Yep. Uh, you know, he was the losing litigant in uh, Gonzalez versus Rach, but a great Commerce Clause guy, libertarian, and just a, a, a kind of a an interesting uh, a jerk sometimes in a, in a fun way at a party yes. setting when you're like doing yeah. some commentating about Nancy Pelosi walking by kind of thing. And uh, we're just sort of sitting there talking smack about people. And Debbie Wasserman Schultz walks up. Oh, God. So like, are you sure it wasn't just the family dog? Oh, <laughs> so, it was the hair, not the face. The that's, hair. She yeah. has a poodle head. That's sexist. No, it's just the. I mean, I swear to God, I, I can't. It's, <laughs> it's fine. It's, it's totally, like, it's totally I just want to say, Rick James had the same haircut. I'd make the same comment about him. <laughs> Very true. So did D. Snyder. Yeah, D. Snyder. Well, exactly. It's the hair. Uh, <laughs> and we had a super uh, amiable uh, conversation about baseball. Oh, that's not where I thought that was with uh, with Washington. DWS. Yeah. Um, uh, really? Mar- Marlins fan. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, also a Yankees fan. That's because that's the Florida thing. Everyone's based yeah, in yeah, New yeah. York. So yeah, exactly. Yankees it's fan. a very strange constellation of people. Uh, yeah. I tried to shift the conversation over to like to eminent domain and yeah. like uh, stadium subsidies. Yeah. You're getting fired from your job at the yeah. DNC. I didn't mention this. No, no? man. No. 
Cause did you did you like did you go out and like smoke a cigarette with her a little later? <laughs> was that a, is that a euphemism? Well, you know, it usually starts with that. Yeah, yeah let's go yeah, and smoke a cigarette. Crazy, but it ended with that. God, uh, um, it was very nice. I, yeah. I, I saw I saw a lot of our mutual friends. The end. Okay, well, we meandered into some different things here. Uh, can I can I ask a quick question? Um, the uh, we didn't talk about this before. If, about if, who gave us the booze? Because are you going to screw that one up again? Um, no, no. Oh, oh, we should talk about that. Yeah, I'm. I'm Where's slightly, Dan Beer? Is he, he going to make the? Yeah, no, he, Dan. Dan can, can doesn't he, get to. No, is he, he sick get again? To, no, he's always he, sick. He's he, here. He's listening. I know, but he's IMing you. Yeah, he's he's not telling me anything. He doesn't know. Uh, William William Flusick. Yes, is the gentleman that Flus. These two oh, wonderful bottles. Oh, he's in both bottles. of them. Yeah, yeah. Flusick yeah. of. Uh, I mean, I love. I'm, I'm pro Flusick. Whiskey, oh uh, man! But uh, which, yeah, which it, one am I? I will drinking? tell you. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything about. Hands. I don't know anything about alcohol except that I don't know how to drink it well. Yeah. No, you sure really don't. Not. You um, really don't. And I do. So and hold I on. will say that that it seems. I suppose it's pretty good. I just knocked something over. That's the Stranahan's yeah, coming out. Okay. Yeah. So Flusic is so as, gonna, as he's uh, as he's pouring. By the way, Flusic is going to make sure that I'm as he's pouring his digital alcohol. You know what? I'm going to pivot to something else. Um, this week we that's pouring alcohol. That's not me pissing. But yeah, yeah. That's appropriate so for the yeah. uh, that's appropriate for the very I gotta, serious. I got a The very serious topic <laughs> that uh, that I have in mind for us next. Um, there was a uh, there've been a string of police shootings that are back in the news this week. Um, this after uh, a young teenager um, in Texas, uh, one uh, John Edwards. Oh, Jordan Edwards, sorry. Um, it's definitely not John Edwards. Nope, it's jo- Jordan Edwards. What a fall from grace. I would actually be fine with, oh, wait, are we talking about the psychic or the... Positive? No, that's John Edward. Is that right? He's the, he's, the, he's the other guy that's completely full of shit, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Edwards is I, the uh, hair model. I just learned that. J- John Edwards is the guy who was the hair model for Floby, yeah. which was the uh, haircutting mechanism that you would connect to your vacuum cleaner. Do you remember that, the Floby? And uh, who disappeared, by the way, and no one, and if any enterprising journalist out there, how come no one has done the, like, you know, I'm spending a week with John Edwards? Let me, let me see. Let me write that down in my notes. Maybe yeah, I'll see yeah. if you're going to hang out huh. with me. Well, while while Moynihan is making note of that, um, yeah. as I was saying, police shootings. A uh, young man by the name of Jordan Edwards was shot and killed uh, by a police officer. I, I believe on Saturday, um, this this took place. He was attending a party. Um, the initial police report uh, suggested that someone, whoever was driving that car, uh, was attempting to run the police officer over. Um, however, video later emerged, uh, which demonstrated that the car was actually driving away from the police officer and that the police officer fired their gun. They discharged their firearm into uh, the car. The uh, police officer was subsequently shot. Um, the uh, mm. police officer was, in fact, a white gentleman. No, the kid, uh, the, the, the kid was shot, not the police the, officer. Shot. Yeah. The police officer was fired. Sorry fired, fired, yes, fired. The police yeah. officer was fired. Um, the, the, the young man uh, wasn't only shot. He was killed. Um, and for for unknown reasons, um, other stories uh, which happened to be in the news this week as well, uh, the shooting of Walter Scott, um, the mm. gentleman who uh, ran from his car and was shot in the back by a police officer. That case is back in the news this week. Um, Alton Sterling's shooting uh, is back in the news this week. Um, and even uh, Tamir Rice shooting, Tamir Rice's shooting is back in the news this week, all for different reasons. Um, Alton Sterling's case, um, this was the gentleman who was standing in front of a convenience store 
um, when he was confronted by the police, uh, they, they apparently got some phone call that suggested someone was in front of a convenience store waving a gun. It's not clear if uh, Alton was the person that they were called for. Um, but all of these men, and I use the word loosely because we're talking about two kids in this case that are under the age of 18, uh, were killed by police. Um, but the reason we talk about them together um, isn't only because there's news about them this week. It's because they all happen to be uh, black men. Um, and there is a, a, a very well-established narrative in this country about black men and, and sort of criminal justice and police shootings and the unique danger um, that they are in uh, as a result of these shootings. Um, I will say, you know, the racial component is is there. Um, that's certainly a, a part of these stories. But there are some other things that are really, really interesting and important about the uh, Jordan Edwards shooting in particular. Um, the fact that what we've learned now is, in addition to the fluidity of the story, the narratives that emerged from the police department, um, we actually have the police admitting um, when they are releasing the new, the revised statement about the events that took place, um, that they had not yet interviewed the police officers who were involved in this shooting. This is several days later. And why hadn't they interviewed them? Because they were giving them an opportunity to decompress. This I believe is, that is the word that was used. This is pretty standard. Uh, decompress. Yeah. This is standard uh, often uh, places. And I think in Louisiana, uh, and I'm sure I'm quoting the details wrong, but it's something like 30 days by statute. You're not, or either by statute or by union negotiation, the cop has... Uh, distance between the event and when he's supposed to be interrogated for it. This right. is this is a is is shockingly common and it's terrible. It's right, really because, bad. because their ability to tell the truth is enhanced by the amount of time <laughs> sure. given yeah, to exactly. figure out the best possible story to keep their own asses out of trouble. Um, this is problematic. Um, but not only that, um, we we also have um, the the camera footage. Uh, which is what was used in this particular case, the body cameras, uh, what was used in this particular case to give police officers some sense of what actually happened here. It's not clear, given the amount of space that these officers were receiving to decompress after the shooting event, um, it's not clear where the original account came from. I, I haven't seen uh, answers on that, and it's still very, very early. Um, but one thing does um, appear pretty significant to me. You know, body cameras are something that have become more and more prominent um, in police departments across the country. But one thing I've also seen is, and it started last year, a number of studies that have come out um, and been reported fairly widely suggesting that body cameras are broadly uh, potentially ineffective. Um, and another study that suggested that body cameras are uh, potentially um, seen to what perhaps normalize uh, once the police become accustomed to them is another claim in a different study uh, that once the police come, become accustomed to them, that they are actually more likely to shoot people, that they are more likely to engage in additional we can't stops. can't possibly have enough evidence for no. this. Is, this is the important conclusion, that we, we don't have enough evidence for this. In one case, one of these studies is relying on two police departments, um, and it's relying on two police departments, and it's tracking things over the course of several years, yeah. which doesn't tell you much of anything at all. Furthermore, the fact, it, the fact of the matter is that the, the actual policies that any number of police departments might use when it comes to how they manage these body cameras, whether or not they release the footage to us, to the citizens afterwards, who has access, how long long there's data retention, how long they, whether or not there are any punishments that are meted out for police officers who, I don't know, just shut their damn cameras off uh, while they are wearing them 
not enough to just have cameras and drop them in departments. That doesn't give you much in the Let way of Let me ask you a question, since you've been reading these studies more closely than I have. But I remember the, the first rush of studies... I'm sorry. I'm always coughing in here. Maybe it's because <laughs> one hand's vaping in my face. No, I'm yeah. not. Um, is, it's vapors, not smoke. Whatever. Uh, is uh, in San Bernardino and a, and a couple of other places, uh-huh. the big uh, uh, knockoff effect was that the number of police complaints plummeted, like by a really huge number. Um, yeah. Complaints against them, and then also uh, some measurable uh, uh, like like payouts of uh, of right. people in, as as part of those complaints. Yeah. And so that seemed like. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the, the technology. I mean, this is like cuts like fifteen different ways. But um, I'm currently I'm almost finished with Laura Kipnis's new book, the feminist professor from she's Northwestern. A great interview. She's funny. I I had her on the serious show. I think I was the first person to interview her after that whole thing blew up. And she has an apartment here, and she happened to be here, and and it wasn't. It was just a stroke of luck. And she was the one that was brought up on Title IX charges. Um, for an article that she wrote at Northwestern, and in her book, she Slow actually that down because that's crazy. Uh, it's, it is it is so seriously up on Title IX. Yeah, and this is related to what we're talking about. Writing an article. Yeah, I mean Title IX, which of course you know <laughs> w- was something that that came about in the seventies, basically to equalize women's sports and you know give it some parity with men's sports in in in. Um, uh, colleges and of course, then it became about gender discrimination and sexual violence, etc. And then it was taken so far as to 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 punish in the most Kafka esque way, uh, Laura Kipnis, who's you know a rock rib lefty, uh, a second wave feminist, uh, funny as hell, interesting as hell, and um, in her book. It was one of these things, and it's like it's like a lot of these shooting cases uh, where I'm very, very happy that all these things are back in the news. I think it's great. I what I what I disagree with is the narrative that surrounds a lot of them. Yeah, not the fact that we are putting extra eyes and pressure on police departments to not abuse their power in the way they do. But in the Kipnis book, there was a guy uh, named I think his name is Peter Ludlow, who is a professor at Northwestern also, and he was two two students accused of harassment. And I remember reading about the New York Times and I said, good God, this is actually one of those cases like the swimmer at Stanford who was, who was accused um, and kicked off campus for a sexual assault. This is one of those things that seems like a slam dunk case. And I kept on believing that until about two days ago. And this is the thing about technology is that imagine the hysteria that is surrounding campuses now, enveloping campuses like a like a toxic fog, that if that were to happen in a time in which technology was at a much lower level, because Kipnis gets a call or an email or something from Peter Ludlow after he'd been fired. And I believe his name, I know his name is Ludlow, I don't think it's Peter. And uh, he says, you know, I was, you know, you all, you know my case, you know what happened. And I'm going to deliver to you two boxes because these Title IX investigations are, you know, you can't go with your own lawyer. You can't go with a lawyer. I mean, it is it is the nonviolent version of Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon. She is Rubichev in front of the Inquisitors. And so Ludlow does actually at, the, at some point retain the records. The, the One of the women in the case decided for very, very silly reasons to actually sue him. And, of course, there's the process of discovery, et cetera. And he hands all this to her. In this case, which I thought was open and shut, 
Um, and I believed uh, beginning to end from all the media accounts, she writes about at, you know, in, in incredible detail in a very, very funny way and at great length. And um, she's now being criticized on her campus for writing about it, too. There was a thing about it the other day. But the technology aspect of this, it's the body cameras in a situation like this are text messages, right? Our Facebook messages. All of that stuff is entered into evidence and it doesn't matter because the, the, it's a preordained conclusion. But reading it in, in, in Laura's book is like, oh, my God, that's not what we thought at all. It's, it's totally different. And this guy is clearly has been railroaded in a way that is so astonishing and shocking that it probably wouldn't pass muster in, you know, 1958 Romania. I mean, it's so crazy. And you have these things like, so when you see these studies about police body cameras, it's like, I guess, you know, I, I understand and that, that, that there could be these, you know, knock on effects and it, like maybe, you know, people, these old studies, like you wear a helmet when you're riding a bike, you're more likely to get hit. I remember John Stussel did a thing like this when he wore like a wig and a helmet and rode. Do you remember this? For yeah, I'm wearing a helmet. I must be safer, right? No, you know it's that kind of thing. But and like prostitution, yeah, exactly. It's bad. You're paying women for sex, but it is. It's this thing where, where yeah, like the counterintuitive thing. Yes, but at the same time, it's like we, you know, the 60 Minutes thing that we were talking about the shooting mm -hmm. um, when you have the helicopter camera, and it actually became then uh -huh, uh -huh. about a comment that the helicopter uh, pilot made. Yes. Well, who was the who was the husband of, of the, the officer uh, of the officer? And he said, he, yeah, said and a, he called him a bad dude. He said he looks like a bad dude. It was, yeah. a, it was a black guy who was, who was uh, uh, unarmed and was on PCP and has parked his car in the middle of the street. It became kind of a famous case. Yes, yeah, Terrence, Terrence Crutcher. Terrence Crutcher. Terrence, Terrence Crutcher. I, yeah, I think Terrence that, Crutcher. And like, so yeah. 60 Minutes usually does 15 minute pieces, right? They did a 30 minute piece. And it's all, all analyzing this video. And you have, yeah. you have dash cam video, you have the helicopter video. And this stuff is, you cannot think of this stuff as anything but a positive and you see this guy Ludlow and had all this technology not existed and this hysteria had taken over a campus in 1970 that would have been the end of the road for him now it still was the end of the road but he does have you know somebody like Laura Kipnis who says look I'm a perfect person to interrogate this stuff. I'm not some right-wing lunatic. I'm mm. not a, like, I don't deny that rape is a problem, et cetera. But I just looked at the evidence and everything that you've known about this from the, from the public record is a lie, is wrong. Or at least a quarter of the story, half of the story at the very best. This is all uh, an advertisement for uh, one of the best movies ever made uh, by Francis Ford Coppola from 1974, I believe, called The Conversation. Oh, yeah. Um, mm. People having premature... Is that Gene Hackman, Gene and, Hackman and Shirley MacLaine? Uh, not Shirley MacLaine, but Shirley... Uh, what's her face? Shirley Bassey? La no, Laverne and Shirley, her na whose name is not Shirley. Oh, Penny Marshall. Uh, Cindy. Uh, oh, 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 yeah, yeah. Is it Cindy really in the conversation? Yeah. I and, uh, and I think Harris Ford might be in it. But it's, all, it's about the premature certainty of uh, technological eavesdropping devices and yeah. like, how people then respond to it and i think that's a, there, there's something interesting there we want to get to that conclusion so quickly yeah harrison ford and cindy williams cindy williams yeah yeah, yeah. tremendous movie Again, yeah yes well there's one more thing i wanted to say about these uh these shooting events um well no not one more thing two more things uh first um i don't think it's appropriate for us to chain these particular events together um because the people who were shot by police were in fact black um, I, I just want to go on the record. Uh, each of the cases is different. 
um, they all have their own unique challenges and nuance that has to be navigated in order to figure out what the hell is going on here. Do you suspect that there are shootings that happened with people who weren't black that just aren't getting paid attention to? There, there is no doubt about it. Um, okay. that's, that's certainly true. They, and, they, and they certainly don't become household names. Um, which is important. I mean, there is a chance, there is at least a chance that um, had Jordan not been young and black and had he been shot leaving a party, um, that that family might not have had the benefit of intense media scrutiny following the case and essentially condemning this police officer before we knew much about it. But um, to the argument I, that would be made against scrutiny, it, if he wasn't, if he was uh, uh-huh. not black, he wouldn't have been shot. That's Look, usually the con- some, counter. Sometimes, but this is a car moving away from you. I'm not certain if the police officers knew whether or not he sitting in the car was in fact black. But this is this is the important thing. I mean, th- there's there's a, a bunch of important stuff here. Um, Obviously, we can't know whether or not the police officers were motivated by race, whether that's the thing that made them make the stop um, or or any of those other factors. But when it comes to trying to figure out how to address these situations, how to make certain that we don't have quite so many um, instances of people getting shot by the police uh, occur, and and we shouldn't exaggerate, as we've talked about in the past, there's there's Mm. only so many of these things um, Mm. that happen. That is important to note. That is, it, it is hardly the case that the most dangerous situation in the universe is for a black person to encounter the police, even if you believe that the disproportionate uh, respect to, with respect to the population um, share of police shootings involving black people is a consequence of racism. That is hardly the most uh, significant challenge uh, facing black folks. Um, but the one other point I wanted to make is oftentimes these narratives start to focus on whether or not the kid in the situation, the man, um, had a clean record or was the valedictorian of their high school. Um, And it is completely irrelevant. Um, It doesn't matter whether or not Walter Scott was a good guy. Um, It doesn't matter whether or not Jordan was uh, well-liked in his school. What matters uh, are the facts of the case. What matters is whether or not this was justifiable. And what matters is whether or not there is a serious process for investigating these these circumstances in which the police are coming into contact with citizens and shooting them. Um, I I mentioned uh, Walter Scott's case a little earlier, um, and it's the sort of situation when we had this video. Um, it seemed pretty obvious to pretty much everyone who saw that video, like what on earth was going on here. I remember, I remember we watched it. I think we were at Fox at this time, Matt. And I remember watching the video, seeing the officer drop the taser, like near Walter Scott's body, um, afterwards. And initially I didn't see the rest of that video. That's, that's all I saw. Um, and I wrote this office. Wow. That is incredible. Just, just terrible. The worst thing imaginable. Um, and the fact that there was some sort of wrestling that took place, that at some point Walter Scott actually had possession of the officer's taser is something I wasn't aware of. And while one can watch the video and see that Walter Scott is definitely shot in the back, that he had taken steps away from the officer, um, it's hard for me to... I try to put myself in the shoes of the officer who takes out his gun and fires at Walter Scott, who's running away from him. Right, um, and right, right there in the back. Yeah, in the in the back. But but I mean, I don't know what that what it's like when it what that how that transpires for you when you when you wonder when you're wondering if the guy has your taser. I'm not making excuses for him. I appreciate. And this is a this is a gentleman who has, in fact, 
uh, entered into a, a plea agreement with the uh, Fed, with the Fed, with the Justice Department. Yes, um, and is, is potentially facing life in prison um, for for this shooting. I'm not saying that's the wrong call, um, but I'm saying even in that case, as cut and dry as it seems from the outset, looking at it, I think it's worth investigating the case and looking at the merits of the case on an individual basis rather than turning Walter Scott um, and the officer who shot him, whose name escapes me at the moment, um, into just another example, a black sh- black uh, black man shot by a white cop. I think it's I think it's worthwhile for there to be a very serious, thoughtful investigation. And it's worth noting that uh, a jury like actually looked at this case in South Carolina, I believe it mm-hmm. was, um, and was not able to reach uh, a verdict of guilty in that I particular commend, case. I uh, recommend and commend people to look at Jacob Solom's uh, post on this this week at Reason.com. Jacob Solom's one of the most judicious and fair writers out there. And his conclusion from the vast uh, separation between the jury conclusion and the plea agreement that the officer himself uh, or his lawyer came up with in the, I guess, the not civil trial or the separate trial. Civil, civil rights. Of that civil rights trial. Yep. Um, his takeaway was that it shows that in criminal trials about police abuse, there is uh, a way too strong over-deference to police. Um, mm. And it's really difficult to convict a policeman for doing something that is obviously wrong. That was his conclusion mm. from it. I, don't, I haven't cited enough, so I can't say yeah. that's my conclusion. Yeah. Um, but I think that there's... Likely, the deck is stacked in favor of cops in these kinds of things. It always is well, yeah. public opinion and just the way things are done in the criminal justice. Judges and ju- judges and juries too. I mean, it, you know, I remember a, a lawyer telling me this um, twenty years ago of being in a situation where you're going to be up. There's going to be a cop who's going to say you did something wrong, and that you know the judge is going to do everything in his power to not, in a very small, uh, you know, a small ball kind of thing say that the the cop is lying. They don't want to do that. They don't want to say that the cop, you know, okay, go back out in the beat. By the way, we're just going to throw this out because you're full of shit. They're just reluctant to do that. Cops are uh, never touched in, in perjury for uh, testimony. Yeah, and of they course. And perjure themselves. All the time. Yeah. And the other, the, the other thing is that as far as the narrative of this stuff is that I think one of the, the things that kind of made me a skeptic about a lot of things, and it wasn't particular to, you know, issues involving race and police, but when I was uh, a lot younger, I got Lou Cannon's book. You remember Lou Cannon? Oh, you're yeah. in L.A. You're in L.A. Man, LA guy. Uh, where he wrote uh, a book about the Rodney King, uh, well, basically about the L.A. riots, Rodney King, et cetera. And the, there is a big fat chapter on the tape, which... I remember there was a 81 second moment of silence. I think it was 81 seconds. I can't remember. if I might be um, because they were for every second of the tape. And Cannon writes in his book, well, you know, that really wasn't the entire tape. And the reason it was cut was actually not for any sort of political reasons. People were not trying to create some narrative of, you know, racist cops in L.A. and the LAPD, especially. And that was something that was a very common uh, a common theme at the time, it was because the person who shot it shot the first bit and it was blurry. And they didn't want to use the blurry bit in the local news. So they cut it out. And then that bit from the local affiliate 
was what was broadcast to the world. And that's what we saw. It was just the beating. And the original bit had a little more to it. Mm-hmm. And a little more to it was being shot with a taser. And it was one of those old ones that would spider on and like clip into your chest. And he pulls it out. And he's clearly on something. Is it on PCP? And keeps getting up. And, you know, Cannon has this really interesting thing about the other people in the car who were never touched, uh, also African-American, et cetera. And, and, and I said, you know, it was one of those bits that like the Spanish Civil War photograph of the guy getting shot in the chest and is, you know, clearly it was that, um, you know, Robert Kappa photo of a gun up in the air. And it was, we found out recently, recently that it was staged because we that somebody did the topography of the land and discovered there was no battle at that time. Oh, and it's really interesting. And so wow. uh, there's a great book about this of like photographs lying and video lying. Is the Robert... Earl Morris or Robert Morris book? Um, uh, you mean Errol Morris film? Errol. Oh no, 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 I know who you're talking about. Yeah, and it's it's this it's a yeah it's a filmmaker of uh, right, but yeah, it's this whole thing about like uh, the Battle of Crimea actually from 1840. Yeah, and it, yeah, yeah, and there's yeah, and there's we have all these background. This like you know the photo, the famous one um, from Vietnam of the guy uh, video being shot in the head. And uh, the guy, the guy who took the photograph was named Adams. I can't remember. He was for Time Magazine. And before he died, the guy who shot him in the head, the Vietnamese um, South Vietnamese officer that shot him in the head, had died uh, before Adams, not long before Adams had died. And he worked in a pizza shop. He owned a pizza shop. Worked in a pizza shop in Virginia. He got out of Vietnam, and he apologized for taking that photo. It's really interesting. Look it up. Really? Yeah. Well, because basically what he said is that what I did is I captured a moment. And what had happened was that person had killed a whole bunch of people in his unit in the most brutal way, you know, just minutes before. And it was a bit of very Vietnamese at the time, very sort of um, Vietnam War time, was a bit of battlefield justice that we wish wouldn't happen. But I ruined this guy's life by taking a snapshot that didn't explain the context of his life and that moment in his life. And it's a really, really interesting piece that he wrote, um, and he died fairly recently too, about what he had done to this guy's life just by doing his job. And what he had done was not, a- was not inaccurate, but it was incomplete. And that, mm-hmm. those, are, those are different things. And I, I just thought that was a, you know, so when you see, you know, um, Camille and I have talked about this a number of times of, you know, the Michael Brown stuff, is that, you know, it's very hard, especially in the, the, the media cycle as we have it now, is to withhold judgment for a little bit. So which is kind of why you mm-hmm. get their criminal histories. Sure. We don't have anything. It's like, OK, so, you know, the, you know we need to figure out, well, also is this so guy good or bad? Yeah, it's yeah. so much more yeah. interesting when there are they did angels a criminal, and demons. Yeah, they yeah. did a criminal history and the guy that was dragged off the plane, yeah. the United plane. It was like the, the, the oh, doctor. Right, right, right. It was like, ah, oh, he was like, he was, he was done for this, that, and the other. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but he just didn't want to give up a seat. I mean, what does that have to do with his, like, sexual proclivities and there was some stuff like that you saw that with eric garner too like he did uh-huh. a yeah. lot of interactions with the police yeah yeah. yeah 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 it's like no he was he was selling lucy's and you killed him and that's pretty much yeah so camille's point fucking bill de blasio like you're the one camille who tells me to get close to the mic and then i want i, I, I want it fucking no it, that's like, it that's fine but it's up. all fire yeah i mean look if i've got to endure that in order for people to hear your melodious voice <laughs> I, just, I don't like at the same yeah. level all like, throughout the recording one hand's doing here at hanger studios in new york yeah no i'm like I'm, I'm like Linda Lovelace on this microphone. <laughs> Unbelievable. The Jenna Jameson of 50, 50th Street. Oh, my gosh. Do we have a Some Idiot wrote this on time? Uh, We're getting up on time Yeah, we got to get the hell yeah. out of here. I got tickets to go see uh, Guardians of the Galaxy at 1030. Oh, okay. Yeah. Two. Wow. Hot ticket yep. for like a movie that's been out two weeks. No, yeah. it came out, came out yesterday. Or I mean, like, yeah, today. Today. 
Yeah. Thursday. Way to go, yeah, man. Yeah, I think so. Come on. Ah, wow. That's Way a different go. one. I got, uh, I, got I, just, one, I got one extra g- ticket if you want to. Uh, well, the, you know, you just denounced it, so yeah. maybe not. You can, <laughs> <laughs> I'm catching like a... Squirming. I'm catching a 7 a.m. flight. Uh, uh, who's got us some... Uh, uh, I got one that's a, that's a collective uh, thing in the Nation magazine. Um, what is happening in, in Venezuela now, which looks like we are trespassing the boundaries of the end of Chavismo and uh, the Chavez-Maduro dictatorship. And we're seeing now, of course, um, as this kind of the wheels are really coming off of it, we see the Lenin-Trotsky issue um, where uh, Stalin was the bad guy. And it was he just corrupted Leninism, of course. Lenin died in 1924, uh, 24, 25. And uh, Trotsky was exiled, but he was the head of the Red Army and did all sorts of horrible things. But it was enough time where we could say, like, no, no, they were the good guys. They were the good guys. Actually, it was the other guys was the bad guy. We're seeing that now with Chavez. We have the institutional memory in this as we forget about all the horrible things that Chavez does. And now all did, and all these people now are blaming. It was just Maduro that went off, it went off the rails with him. So the Nation magazine, uh, reliable as they are and being the wrong side of history uh, decided to do to ask all of these um, sycophants and halfwits who um, decided uh, that they were going to make their latest political pilgrimage to Venezuela in 1999-2000 and be Chavistas because this was the next great, uh, you know, praised them. Oliver Stone did his film about Chavez, etc. They asked them what, what um, you know, how do you explain this, basically? Uh, they didn't do it, do it that way, but every single person had, a couple of them had a couple of caveats and said, well, you know, it's a little bit of a heavy hand. You know, now we have the death toll, I believe as of tonight, 33, 34 people that were shot and killed. Um, some of them were shot and killed. Some of them were hit with tear gas canisters that hit them square in the head and just killed them. Did you uh, see them with the guys dancing on the balcony, that YouTube video? Which one? I saw a couple of them today. The, the Maduro dancing one is the best thing I've yeah, ever no, seen. Yeah, no, he's dancing and on the guy, balcony. And, and the, guy, the guy pans out to the... To the it's amazing. While they're being shot it's, with tear it, gas canisters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and these... these armored uh, vehicles coming towards the t- towards the lines and what has happened um in the past couple of days is um just the real i mean the, the democracy ended there a long time ago but the real final nail in the coffin when maduro announced a uh constituent assembly uh, because the National Assembly was controlled by the opposition, they would make we don't know how this would be would be assembled, but they would be chavistas. They were a part of the people. The people would actually make the laws and approve a new constitution. They've changed the constitution twice since Chavez came to power in ninety nine two thousand seven. So now we're going to have normal people, and it's like, yeah, guys, they're the people who elected the National Assembly, and it's gotten so bad that Leopoldo Lopez, the 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 great opposition politician. Um, who's in prison? They had to do a proof of life video last night, um, because which yeah, is a, those rumors. Right? It was rumors that he that, that he went to the hospital, but it's the weirdest, weirdest video. And I watched it on the way into the city tonight, where he is like jacked. He's like in prison doing nothing but push-ups, and he says like they he says I'm labeled Lopez and I'm alive and it's this day and this time, and he says I don't know why I'm doing this, which is a great and they broadcast this on Venezuelan state television. It's a great sort of insight into how isolated uh, he is from everything that's going on outside. He had no idea. He's like, I don't know why I'm doing this, but this is, I'm alive. And so these guys in the nation are reliably wrong and read it, read um, them on uh, the state of Venezuela now. And it is amazing at a point where people can blame, you know, the empire, the empire up north. 
the fact that the rich people are doing this. And so I just say this, when Maduro has 18%, 20% approval rating, something like that, you have millions of people uh, in Venezuela, uh, out on the streets, millions of them, as, and in all across the country. And so the language that we used for so long was that the opposition to, to Chavez and Chavismo and to Maduro um, was from the elites. And I, they're making the same argument. And I just say to them, to these idiots who wrote this, I didn't know Venezuela was such a rich country. Because apparently 60% of the country is upper middle class. And why did, I mean, it's, it's one of the great economic success stories of the 20th and 21st century because all of these people that are just you know, flush with, with, with cash and are trying to protect their own you know, mustache-twisting evil business interests are out there. And on, 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 I, I would hope, uh, to, to much to the consternation of these idiots, that I hope it'll all end soon. And it, it will end... And the Venezuelan people will have to will get out of this almost twenty year nightmare that that the Cubans now are living for their almost you know what seventieth year sixtieth year. It's I hope it ends soon. Yeah, Matt, you got anything? I mean, it was just so good. So let's just yeah. It. No, that's that's pretty good. Um, you just want to go to Guardians of the Galaxy? Well, too. yeah, I, I need to <laughs> I need to get out of here. Um, I, I did want to ask you guys. Did God you see this? Uh, no, this is my parting shot. And it's, I'm not. It's not a diss, but right. the uh, the the Washington Post um, review of uh, the the new David Garrow book, uh, "The Making of Barack Obama: Rising Star," is the name of the book. Um, I I only read the view review. I haven't read the book. You um, read Carlos Lozada's review, right? Um, is that who wrote the review? In the Post, read the one in the yeah. Times. Machiko Kakutani said it was like the worst thing she's ever read. Is that right? Yeah, she yeah. just destroyed I it. I don't know if the book is any good. Yeah. Um, but what I found, and I don't, I don't, I don't, I have no idea if it's if any of it is true. Um, but what I do believe is true because Barack Obama also talks about this in Dreams for My Father. Um, is the I believe so. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. I'm also a little inebriated. Um, but the uh, inter, inter, interracial <laughs> interracial interracial marriage, um, and the fact that Barack Obama very nearly married a woman who was not, in fact, uh, Michelle Obama, and was perhaps not as brown um, and affirmatively black as she was. Was it Debbie Wasserman Schultz? <laughs> it wasn't Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Yeah. Surprisingly, it's because weird, he wouldn't though. want to marry yeah. Debbie Wasserman yeah. Schultz. Lastly, come home. But uh, you know, <laughs> oh! to, to the extent, to the extent, it's the, the hair. It to the extent the president had any trepidation about marrying a woman that was not black, because he felt like there were social. Was, oh, Dan Beer sent me a text and says uh, it's Rachel Dolezal. Um, it's not Rachel Dolezal. But to the extent the president had any uh, reservations about marrying um, a woman that was not black, I wonder. If anyone ever asked him about his uh, perspective on interracial marriage, like later in life while he was president, would you? Do you uh, believe it? What do you believe that? I mean, the woman is apparently quite bitter. Calculating, calculating decision. Well, she also says that about him too. That like. You know, he was just always looking for the next step, which is fine. Yeah. I'm fine. I don't think there's a criticism. I don't think it's fine. I, I will say, I mean, the the one thing that is that that does strike me as is true um, is that there are quite a few presidents 
in history who have imagined themselves as president at some point in the future, that that's a, a characteristic they all of, say that. of people who rise to the office. Visualization works, man. Uh, perhaps, perhaps it's true. Perhaps it's have not. Have you not been a high um, jumper? In either case, that is the only thing I wanted to say. <laughs> and perhaps I visualize myself about. being shit faced in a, in a, um, you know, little room in midtown Manhattan well, talking to you scumbags. Here you are. Weird. <laughs> Lucky you. Um, there, there are some, uh, very cool, interesting, exciting developments that will happen before the end of this month. Yes. Um, what? But but other things that are going on, um, my uh, spectacular, impressive, amazing um, debate uh, is happening at the Soho Forum in, what, two weeks? Uh, so the, if you happen to be in the, New York, give them the you date. can come. Give them the date. It's, what, the Tuesday after this Tuesday? Maybe, they, maybe they have miles. Stupid they have, they have like Listen, Delta miles. Just go Fly to Soho out. Forum. Come on. Go, go to SohoForum.com. You can find out some more about that. Bullshit. It's um, uh, May 23rd. No, it's not true. Okay, then it's May 16th. Or something. Yeah, you Matt has get... no idea. It doesn't no, matter. What are you, you debating? What are you debating? Uh, the, the proposition has something to do with whether or not America's college campuses are havens of racial discrimination and they are uniquely hostile and dangerous for black people. I will let you guess whether or not I am arguing can, can, in the who affirmative you or the negative. Can you just on make one, one, one? It doesn't matter can, because I've already won. <laughs> Damn it. Um, can you make one point for me doing this? Is it that why is Asada it, taught me? Yeah, Asada, as, yeah, 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 Asada yeah. taught me. Don't in, worry, I will. Uh, yeah, ask Asada how her internet connection is doing these days. <laughs> Yeah, she got, did she get fi- Google Fiber? I don't there know. In, she uh, won't be able to find her article on ESPN, uh, the ESPN website. Anymore. That's right, because she I'm can't get it because she lives in Cuba. Dan Beer also sent me the um, but, uh, the The thing is that why is it, I keep wondering this, is why is it the most racial hatred on campuses happen to be in places like Oberlin? It's like, is that is that right? Is it really? It's like the most kind of radical campuses also mysteriously have the most Klansmen running around, which they found out later was a person in a bathrobe. Do you remember that one? My favorite thing ever. Look it up. It's my favorite. Well, it's some idiot saw this on the street in Ohio. Well, I won't comment on that because you'll you'll have to uh, check out my my commentary on that later. Uh, It it should be on C-SPAN from what I understand. But I am I am confident that I'm going to use uh, the N-word so many times during the course. So this Are event, you it going won't to, be able to beat hear. my record at the Soho Forum? No one at What's the that? Soho Forum What's at that? a debate has moved the audience more uh-huh. against his, them <laughs> in his or her yeah. direction uh-huh. yeah. as I did against Jonathan Shade. So yeah. you, that's that's the standard. You Matt, like- Matt, when you start it and it's like resolved, the Holocaust <laughs> didn't happen. It's kind of easy to make it the needle move in the other direction. That isn't what yeah. happened. Yeah. At any rate, Matt, I that's was, what he I said. Was that isn't what happened. You, you did. You did set the standard. I, I intend to blow to blow that standard out of the water. Complete but, and utter domination. But listeners, is going to be pack great. the house. Soho yeah. Forum. It's either May sixteenth or twenty third. Yeah. Camille is too disorganized and drunk, frankly, this is true. to actually give you the date. But, All of these things are true. But like, follow it up on uh, We the Fifth, and where, yeah. do they find, where do they find us? Yeah, at, at www.wethefifth.com. It's on Twitter. It's on Instagram. You literally, there's going to be a people there's of no a certain age that will get this reference. You sounded like Foster Dear Brooks. Thanks so much to our to our Stitcher, iTunes, our special guest. Jeez, guys, thank you for thank you for being here. We're gonna we're gonna play the music in a second. Thanks to Dan Beer uh, for doing production stuff. Grumpy. Thank you Matt Welch and Michael <laughs> Moynihan who eventually showed up. Grumpy. I'm going to go see Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm calling my Uber Gallagher right now. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The fifth